Amen, right? What a great song. You lead me, keep me from falling. You carry me close to your heart. Your goodness and your mercy, they follow me. Even when life's big time under pressure. We're in week six of our series under pressure. What's up when life's feeling so down? What's up when life is looking so down? And we began five weeks ago by starting in James chapter one. James chapter one, setting the foundation, the base off of which the rest of this series is talking about. And then we've gone, we've taken a look at real people to see how they are living out James 1. We've seen Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Habakkuk, and today we're going to go to David. We've got a handful of others we're going to be going in the weeks ahead, and we're looking at these biblical characters to see James chapter 1 worked out in their life pressures. Why? We're not just doing this for an exercise just to be able to say we did it. But we're doing this to see them, to look at them, to observe them, and to learn from them so that we can be James 1 kind of people for God's glory. And the question of what's up when life's looking so down is not just a question for us alone. I mean, it certainly is a reality that followers of Christ are asking the question, and we should be. I mean, like, at times you're like, so what's up, right? I mean, Christians are going around and they're asking questions like, so what's up, right? Okay, Woo. okay, good. And it's true. And it, that even is shown in the reality that we even sing about it. We sing about life under pressure. We sing, what's up, God? What's going on? Yet uh, in it all, uh, let me also remind us of this. The world is also asking the question. And the world is looking for answers. What is up? And the world around us is singing about it. In fact, I'd like for us to take a look and uh, enter into a brief part of a David Bowie concert and listen to the words. Go, go. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, welcome back. <laughs> but it's interesting, uh, buildings burning down, families splitting in two, people put on streets, and they sing, uh, there's great terror and fear. So what's up? Everybody's asking. Everybody's wondering. The world around us is asking, where's the hope? What's the purpose? Well, we've been learning from the scriptures that the follower of Jesus Christ really is to have an upside-down paradigm. It's called a biblical paradigm. You see, uh, Bowie and Queen sings it as well. They go on to sing about, oh, we just need to love a little bit more. That's the answer. Is that the really the answer? There's a far better answer. And there's a far better opportunity or a great opportunity for the follower of Christ to be able to stand and magnify the Lord in opportunities that he allows to come before us. We're going to learn today as we join a nation, as we join some individuals, and we observe them, and we're going to see some who are seeing their life circumstances through a lens that shows the reality there's an impotent, weak, unavailable, uninvolved God And then we're going to take a look at just see one who saw a big God, powerful God, an involved God, an engaged God. And he looked at the situation through the lens of that reality. And we're going to see the difference. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Trials can be opportunities to stand and magnify our God. Trials can be opportunities to stand and magnify our God. Now, let me set a little bit of context here to 1 Samuel 17. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, it's uh, centuries earlier. The Israelites uh, had left Egypt. Uh, They entered the promised land, settled in the promised land. Time moves along. The book of Judges tells us that the people of God wanted to live their own way. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. Time moves along, and, and God wants them, God wants to be their king, but uh, he allows them to put in place human leaders, uh, leaders that uh, they called judges at the time, who were more like presidents, prime ministers, kings, as we would uh, understand, for over three centuries. Then Samuel comes along. Samuel is a great prophet that lives in the time of David and Saul. He's born, Samuel chapter 1. Samuel chapter 9 tells us about a handsome, very tall, head and shoulders above all the people of Israel, man who is put in as king and his name is Saul. During this time, there's a whole bunch of fighting that's going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. As time moves along, King Saul turns from the Lord and Samuel tells us that actually the Lord ends up rejecting Saul. We then see in 1 Samuel 16, just to the left of 17 there, uh, we see a a new guy come on the scene. We see this shepherd boy who Samuel selects to be as the anointed king, not at this time, but in a little bit of time after Saul is gone, actually quite quite a bit of time as far as from David's perspective, that he becomes king. But David then, at the end of chapter 16, he is found as Saul's musician, one of the king's musicians. And this doesn't necessarily mean that Saul and David had like this phenomenal relationship where they knew each other well. I mean, it could be that David like is behind a curtain playing music for Saul at the time, but we find him in this really amazing place, and we pick him up at chapter 17, verse 1. Here we go. 
Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Succah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now I want to bring up a, ma- a picture here, kind of a, a picture as you were flying over the region. This over here is the, the mountainous, if you will, or hilly area where the Israelites are encamped somewhere along here. Up above there, in fact, you see Sukkah, one of the words that was used. This is the area that, where the Philistines are encamped. This is west of Jerusalem, and down here you see this valley. This is the Valley of Elah. It's really cool because Karen and I, last November when we were over in Israel, we literally, our bus took, went down this road, ended up just off the edge of the curtain, and we got out and uh, were there for a while. In fact, let's bring up that next picture that shows kind of from ground level, a picture we had taken while we were there. Over here on the left is kind of where the area uh, that begins mountainous area, hill area, where the Israelites aren't camped over there. Over to the right again is where the Philistines are. This is the valley area, and you see quite a few stones in here in this area. Um, Somewhere along this area is where this story is taking place. Let's pick up in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side over on your right, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side to your left with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Oh, I love that name. I so want that name. It just sounds cool, doesn't it? I mean, this is like WWF, Goliath of Gath. I don't know. I think it's really cool whose height was six cubits and a span. This boy was nine feet, nine inches. This is a giant, verse five, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head. It's probably like the size of a bathtub. And he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. His coat weighed 125 pounds. Verse 6, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam and the spear's head weighed 15 pounds. 15 pounds. I mean, I could like grab a 15 pound weight or we carry those weights out to put on the flags. I think they're 20 pounds each. I'm like, I could just like go, and maybe I might get it to Nick uh, here in the first row, but I wouldn't want to do that to you, Nick. But he has this gargantuan. The whole point of this is this guy is huge. Okay? That's the point of verse 8. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? A little bit of smack talk going on here. You know, Philistines are better than you guys. That's kind of what's taking place here, but in a much deeper, bigger voice. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is really quite an interesting battle. This is like a one-shot battle thing going on here. Got the picture. Here's the Philistines over here. They come out. We're reading a little bit on how it works. And they all come out in the morning and the evening. They come out. Goliath walks out. The Israelites, they're all lined up. The army's lined up over here. And Goliath is yelling, come on, come on, send someone out. And if I win, you all will be my servants. Now, that's quite a gamble. I mean, because if you're a Philistine over here in the back, like, what's the rest of the armor even for? 
I mean, they're over there, and they're like cheering Goliath on. Yeah, you're the man. I hope you win because I don't want to be a slave. And that's, it's, it's an interesting setting, but that's the setting that's taking place here with what's happening. Verse 10, And the Philistine, Goliath, said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now here, Saul is king of actually a powerful nation. He's king. And earlier in Samuel, it tells us that Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, this is Israel's big boy. This is Israel's similar to Goliath guy, and he's the king. And what's his condition? Dismayed, not just afraid, but greatly afraid, as well as the whole nation is. I mean, here's this guy. He's good looking, the text earlier tells us. I don't know what that has to do with it, but he's good looking, and he's huge. Saul is. And yet he has this army that's disheartened and terrified. Why? Why are they in this situation? Uh, Because Saul and all of Israel is only seeing the outward reality of their circumstances. All they're doing is they're looking at this and they're going, this guy's huge. There's no way I can beat this guy. No way. He's viewing life with a godless lens. Listen, this is a situation where people are really big. Circumstances are really big. And God is non-existent or small. This is about, in fact, there's a great book, if you haven't read it, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And this is what's taking place here. People look really big. The situation looks really big. And God is completely not involved in the whole matter. At least that's the situation that's happening here. It's a great lesson. It's a great lesson on how fear clicks in when I disconnect God from my situation. Earlier in the song, there's great terror and fear. Hey, listen, we understand fear. I understand fear. I understand that emotion. We all get what's going on here. And if we understand the situation, we're all like, let's be real. I can understand why there would be some real fear going on. The emotion is there. But fear clicks in and stays in when I disconnect God from it. It's kind of the, am I even aware that, are these guys even aware that God is like alive? Are they aware that, that God is protecting them? Do they even consider that God cares? Do they, are they even thinking about the fact that God is sovereign? Or maybe they're thinking, well, God is sovereign, but he's not sovereign enough for this situation. You see, the situation I have right now in my life, God's not big enough for that. He's big enough for other people, and he's big enough for other situations. But the situation I happen to have right now in my life, God's not big enough for that one. Because I can't see where this is going. Because the obstacles are way too big. It's a godless lens. Let me just bring in a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, the uh, translations say no temptation has overtaken you, but the word in the Greek for temptation can also be uh, translated into trial. It says no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be trialed beyond what you can bear. Do you know that? Do you know that anything that comes into your life, God has already been a filtering process? 
There is nothing, nothing that comes into your and my life that God has not already, if you will, allowed to come through. God's not playing the catch-up game. God is not on the throne like scared to death. God is not on the throne figuring it out. God is on the throne and how wonderful a faithful God for you and for me is filtering out anything that's going to be too big and take us out. God will not allow it to happen. But God does allow trials to come in to grow us as we've been talking about in these past weeks. He does allow situations and this one, this situation to be able to come and for someone to stand and to magnify God before other people. Another one, Hebrews 13, 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Why do I not fear? Because the Lord is my helper. Not because I'm great. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, by the way, as a follower of Christ, is death really even so bad? I don't look forward to the process of death. I mean, who does? Karen and I have already agreed we're going to die in the middle of the night together. <laughs> Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, we understand fear. I understand fear. But fear clicks in as a result of disconnecting God from my situation. But now we're going to start seeing another guy come on the scene. And we're going to learn from David that faith clicks in when I connect God to my situation. Fear clicks in when I disconnect God from my situation. Faith clicks in when I connect God to my situation. Let's take a look at this bad boy. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Aphrodite of Bethlehem and Judah, whose, whose name was Jesse. In other words, his dad was Jesse, who had eight sons. How many sons did he have? Eight. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in year. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. Why did they follow Saul to the battle? Because they were the oldest ones and they were of age to be able to fight in the war. They were able to fight on the military battle. Uh, David is too young to fight. This isn't a matter of David doesn't want to. This is a matter of Dave's just too young. He's a young snapper. Uh, three oldest sons, Jesse, followed Saul to battle, and the names of the three sons were Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. In verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Okay, the setting here. What's going on with David? Okay, so the Israelites are over here. This is west of Jerusalem. David from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a little west of Jerusalem. And so here we have this whole situation where in that day, in the military battles, they did not have like a big cafeteria. They didn't have people in the army who cooked food for all of the military uh, guys in the fight. So what would take place is actually the family was responsible for bringing food for their loved ones that were in the army. So what David's doing here is he's literally bringing food back and forth Oh, the Tupperware containers back and forth to his brothers to give them food on the battle. Now, also, the way the text is worded here, back and forth from Saul, there's potentially kind of two things. It was not a big deal, but I think it clearly is talking about the fact he's bringing food back to his brothers and uh, with that. But it's also very possible that David could be coming, and because in chapter 16, we find him as one of Saul's musicians. It could be here and there that David is playing some uh, music for Saul out on the back 40. I don't quite know, but we know David's going back and forth. Let's pick up verse 16. For 40 days, how many days? 
for four, by the way, the Bible talks a lot about 40 days. But for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. Okay, so what would happen day one? The Philistines line up. Goliath comes out. Come and get me. You know, I'm big. I'm a man. And then Israel's over here. They come out and they're going, we're not a man. And they run in the morning. Then it comes, the same thing happens in the evening. They all line up. The ranks come out. And then the same thing happens. And then it happens on day two. It happens on day three, day four. Day five, day six, day seven, day eight, day nine, and then day, and then it jump all the way to 40. Now, why do I bring this up? I think this is really quite important because in this process, this has been an extended process. Listen, folks, we, we are all growing and changing in Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior. And there are times where we just struggle in seeing and connecting God to my situation. And listen, sometimes that happens for a day. It happens for a week. It can happen for a couple weeks. But listen, this has been 40 days, like five weeks. And the whole nation of Israel, if you will, the army of the living God is not doing anything to bring up the fact of God in this whole deal. This is about a people. It just shows you the spiritual condition of Israel at this time. God's chosen people at the time. God was not a part of, it was not relevant in their situation. It was not being applied to their situation. My situation is bigger than God and no one is even thinking about that. And, but that was the reality of what they were doing. It just tells you that fear has clicked into these people because they've disconnected God. But here's this guy. David. Verse 17. And uh, Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah, the parched grain, and these 10 loaves. Carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. That's what we're talking about with the food. Verse 18. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are willing to bring some token for them. In other words, this is like a parent, isn't it? You know, hey, if we're going to send some food, also make sure and send some food for the one who uh, is in charge of my boys. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. And I'm sure the commander appreciated the cheese. Verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Is there an irony right there? Like fighting what? What fighting? In the morning he comes out, and they run. And then that night he comes out, and they run. There's no fighting. That's the problem. Anyway, and they're fighting. Ooh, the Israelites, man, they are some tough dudes. Verse 20, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. Way to go. There's a responsible shepherd. And he took the provision and went. And as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And this is important. And David heard him. I think from the text, I'm getting this idea that what's taking place is David's heard about this. I mean, come on, he's been going back and forth. 
And it may be that David has actually never been there. That's kind of the, the feel that I get from the text here. I'm not fully sure, but I get this feel from the text that David's been going back and forth. And so he's familiar with the battle. He's heard about Goliath. He's heard about the situation. But this is the first time where he's all of a sudden, he's heard the thing for real. Verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled for him and were much afraid. David's seeing this. He hears him speak, hears him speak, and then he sees them run. I'm a very visual person. I'm not an academic book kind of a guy. And I just, I can so understand where here it's kind of like at this point, all of a sudden it clicks for David what's really going on. And he grasps the real picture of what's happening in this whole situation. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? He is one big bad boy. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. They're looking horizontally just at their circumstances. God's not connected. And the king, by the way, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, I like this. This is kind of interesting. Oh, so uh, uh, guys, hey, I just heard that. So what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Kind of like Joseph, we studied a few weeks ago in his comment. But here's the kicker. Look at the difference in thinking. Look at upside down biblical thinking. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David takes in what's going on here. And David is looking at life through a lens of a living God. He's looking at life through the lens of a God who has made a covenant with the people. And he's in essence, he's asking the question kind of like, excuse me, but anyone remembering whose we are? Does anyone happen to remember what's going on? That's a comment about, this is an uncircumcised Philistine. Listen, this is not God's promised people covenant people at the time. And David's kind of here. It's like, uh, does anyone remember that we're God's nation? We're God's people? Like, this is God's army? Excuse me, but does anyone remembering, like, who God is? The God, the creator? The God who made Adam and Eve and everything that lives? And everything that is? The God who, who, who brought the people out of Egypt? There's a whole history of past that the people have completely forgotten. And the answer to those are no, no one's thinking about this. None of them are thinking about it. Everything is completely disconnected from God because the circumstances are far too big for God. And they're not even thinking about God in the whole situation. Listen, this is where David remembers who he is. And we're going to see from the text what God has done. David remembers who he is. Do you know whose you are? If you've received Christ as your Savior, the Scriptures say you are a child of the living God of the universe. I would happen to say that's pretty awesome. That's like really awesome. And yet here we see a nation and we see a king who that's completely irrelevant to their present situation. 
Fear clicks in when I disconnect God from my situation. Faith clicks in when I connect God to my situation. David remembers who he is. And now let's take a look at how he remembers what God has done. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Like they're not, they're just not getting it. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now, why would, why would he be angry with David? He just came and brought him food, and he just like, I don't know, ask a question? Um, but us younger siblings, uh, here's our life. <laughs> and he's, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? Uh, answer, to bring you food, bro. In the anyway, and with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness, you little puny nothing? This is, this is smack talk going on right here. This is an older brother going, you're a little puny, just take care of your little sheep. And I'm out here fighting an army. I mean, look at how we're fighting. <laughs> I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Really? Wow. You're, you're quite a dude. For you have come down to see the battle. Yeah, actually, yeah. And David said, what have I, what have I done now? <laughs> it's not just what have I done, but it's like, here we go again. Now what did I do? Uh, what, have I, what did I do now? Was it, uh, was it not but a word? <laughs> yes, that's all it was. But it starts with right thinking. Verse 30, and he turned away from him toward another, spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Verse 31, when the words of David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. Uh, This is really intriguing because all David does, as we have in the text here, is he asks one question. Like, like, The armies of the living God? Like, where's that a part to hold this thing? And it ends up getting them all the way to Saul. Why? Because upside down thinking, biblical thinking, seeing life through the lens of a big God is completely contrary to everything else on the planet. Oh, and by the way, when you think biblically, generally there's always somebody there to try and discourage you. Don't think biblically. Come on. That's not right. That doesn't feel right. And so brother's doing that. Verse 31, when the words came, he ends up before Saul. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. More discouragement for you, but a youth. Again, horizontal thinking. It's seeing life through the lens of a godless reality. And he's been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep uh, for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him and killed him. What a bad boy. I just think about that, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. He's with sheep. I mean, sheep are not like the smartest animals, and they're not like the most valuable animals on the planet to go wrestle a lion or a bear. By the way, this is not like, oh, that was a nice fable. That was a nice story. This really happened. 
And here's what's going on. David not only is remembering whose he is, but he's remembering what God has done. So as he looks at the present situation, he remembers who God is and what God has done in his life. And he's literally pulling out of his pocket the remembrances of what God back here, God did that and God showed himself faithful. And God did that back here and showed himself faithful. And God did that and showed himself faithful. So (laughs) God's going to show himself faithful again. And we're blessed, folks. We have an entire book filled with realities of people that have done that. And I just want to say, do you have that? Are you thinking about that? Are you evaluating in your life when God has shown up in your life and how God has shown himself faithful so that when trials come along and you're like, oh man, I'm scared to death. I don't get this one. I don't like this what's happening. I I don't know. But listen, I I pulled it out of the pocket. But back here, back here, and back here. And listen, God has shown himself faithful. That's what David's doing here. He's connecting it. He clicks it in, and that requires me, if I'm going to live by faith, that requires me to remember whose I am and what God has done and who God is. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both the lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Hey, that's huge. You see, because oftentimes I think we and people end up, don't connect things in the past. They just live. They just live. It's all about what's coming right now, right at the moment. And they haven't connected what God has done in the past. You see, but here it's clear in the text. David doesn't look back and go, oh man, I wrestled a lion. and Oh man, I wrestled a bear. and I can take this big bad boy. He's looking back and he's going, my goodness, a big God showed up and allowed me to do that, showed himself faithful and as well there. And you know what? Listen, I've come to learn, if you will, David's saying, I've come to learn. It doesn't matter how big a teeth they have. It doesn't matter how tall they are. It doesn't matter how hard the situation is. I'm telling you, God is real and God is faithful and he's going to show up again. And I don't know what it looks like, but I'm clinging on to that. Man, that's tough. It's tough to remember it. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's keep reading. I got to move along. Uh, Verse 38, then Saul clothed David and with his armor, put his helmet on him. It doesn't work. David's like, no, 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 I can't go. This isn't tested. So David put them off. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook. Why five? Just because he picked up five. You know, sometimes people build sermons out of the five stones. Can I just say this? He picked up five. He could have picked up three. He could have picked up four. He could have picked up a handful. He just picked up five stones. Uh, yeah, just in case he missed on the first one. But he just picked up stones. Let's just stay with the text and the whole movement of the story. He picks up these five stones, puts them in his shepherd's pouch, and has a sling in his hand. By the way, a sling in that day, yes, it was used here and there as kind of a protection thing, but it was in great part a child's toy. This was like a BB gun back then. You know, this is what, the red rocket or whatever they call that? Yeah, that. It's like the BB gun in the day, and he's got the slingshot. How cool is this? A, a little, if you will, young, 
a, a, a shepherd, musician with a child's toy against Goliath. Oh, yeah, and a big God. Oh, so cool. God's just making this so evident who's behind this whole thing. And he is. 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of them, which is quite interesting. And the Philistine looked and saw David, disdained him, but he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Uh, David's like, "Uh, come me a stick. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'd be shaking in my boots. Look at David. This has got to be one of the best bad boy statements in the entire scripture. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and you come to me with a spear and you come to me with a javelin. It's really heavy, by the way. But I come to you in the name of the living Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down, cut off your head, and I will give the the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? So that, purpose statement, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Listen, God sometimes brings very unique trials to life that have a public reality to them that are there so that we can be able, in his provision, to be able to show God to other people who really need to see him. And that all this assembly may know, not just think, but know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Hey, by the way, teachers, if you've been taught that this is a, a, a text about how uh, you, can, you can go against big obstacles, that's not the point of the story. That's not what this is about. This is not a horizontal moral teaching thing. This is all about God. This isn't so much about David as it is about a great big God. And David was all about showing a great big God. The only reason David knows that he can even consider this fact is because there's this huge, awesome, powerful, working God who's involved in this situation. He's clinging to God, not himself. He's not clinging to his own self-esteem. He's esteeming God in this situation. 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, I love it, David ran quickly. Man, he is excited to get this on. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and stuck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. By the way, how cool is that? Goliath is coming this way, and boom! And he's just down right before, laying face first before all of Israel. Ah. 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, cut off the head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Yeah, way to go, guys. Way to pick it up now. I'm talking about running on someone's coattails as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from uh, chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Here's a little bit of a slight flashback. As soon as Saul, Saul, date, sorry, Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, who, whose son is this youth? He's wanting to know who's his dad. And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Hey, listen, fear clicks in when I disconnect God from my situation. Faith clicks in when I connect God to my situation. I need to remember whose I am, what God has done, and the next one. I must act in faith. Friends, listen, it's one thing to be able to stand and say, yeah, God's sovereign, yeah, God's involved, yeah, all this kind of stuff, and not do anything about it. Listen, we believe in prayer, we believe in reading the Word. Those are great things, but there also comes a time to where it's like, you know what, get off your knees and start doing what you know is right before the Lord and praying as you're doing it. Stop reading and get at doing. I must act in faith and watch God be magnified. Listen, the armies of Israel saw it show up. The, the Philistines saw it and died shortly after Saul saw it. Can you imagine for Saul? What an incredible lesson. Little shepherd boy. A young shepherd boy. A musician. With a child's toy. And a very big God. I just want to ask you at this point, are you going through a situation right now? Maybe you're going through a situation right now where there's a public reality to it. There's others, co-workers, family, friends, church. And I just want to ask, have you connected God to it? You see, God brings circumstances in life sometimes just for the purpose to be able to really allow a public showing of how great God is. And if you're stuck on fear, then you haven't connected God to it. I'm not saying if you fear, God isn't connected. I'm saying if you're stuck on fear, God has not been connected in it. And you need to connect. And you need to remember whose you are. And you need to remember who God is. And you need to remember what God has done and act and get after it. Step out from being stuck on fear. Let's pray. God, I um, think of very possibly those who are here right now today some of which I know about, who are going through some really serious life trials. 
I pray for them that they would not be like the Israelites. They would not be like Saul, stuck on fear. Lord, you've given us emotion. Instead, I would pray that when that fear is beginning to surface itself, that they would be disciplined in their thinking and that they would draw themselves back to the truth of who you are, of whose they are in Christ, and of what you've already done, both through the Scriptures as well as in their life. And Lord, I pray that they would act and stand for truth. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how those who are in the church, that there's times where factions, schisms, divisions must happen so that those who are genuine in the faith will be able to be made known. God, I thank you that out of an entire nation there is a shepherd boy that didn't just talk about a big God, but lived by a big God. Help us to be that kind of people, Lord. Help us to connect to you, to stand, and to magnify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.